Hello, it's Stan Stalmaker here in Emerald City. We're in for a great conversation today with Benjamin Pring, who is the director for the Cognizant Center for the Future of Work, which sounds very futuristic to me, Ben. I'm talking about your guys' new report called After the Virus, which looks at the world ahead a couple years from now um, and really looks back to where we're at from the moment that we're in now. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, this view that Cognizant has about the future? Yeah, hi, Stan. Great to be with you. Um, yeah, we decided to try and sort of teleport ourselves forward five years and write this report as though we were in 2025, looking back at the, the last five years. You know, what happened in the wake, in the immediate short-term future, the short-term um, sort of reaction to coronavirus and COVID, and, and how did the world react across technology decisions across um, uh, societal decisions, across p personal decisions we make. And we wrote this report after the virus is up on our site. People can find it on, on Cognizant's site. And we and we look at a, a lot of different things. I mean, the, the first kind of big opening statement of the report, um, which is, is that we kind of, though we think, everybody thinks that we're in a very technology mediated world already in 2020, the reality is we're not. We've only scratched the surface of what technology is going to do in the future. Um, I mean, you think about lots of different areas, banking, healthcare, insurance. I mean, there's still, there's a lot of technology in them. But if, if Charles Dickens came back to 2020 and saw how people go to the doctor or saw how people did their banking, he completely recognized that experience, that process. And we think that technology is now going to become completely embedded into the, into the heart of everything. Uh, and we're going to be surprised in another five years how much more techni technologically centric things have become. So we kind of think that after 70 years of being in the information you know, revolution, uh, we're really now in a, in a big bang period in which everything that can go online is going to go online. And just think about the way people are working now at home, uh, on Zoom or whatever. Again, those those models have been quite fringe. Probably no more than 5% of people work regularly at home using these kinds of tools. But by 2025, probably that number is going to be 40 50%. So that's kind of one, one of the big opening statements of the report. So Ben, that like portends enormous changes across so many different industries and, and really just our way of life and on both sides. So on the kind of work side, as well as on the consumer side, because I can imagine, I mean, like many people, we've had our schedules and our, our lives really changed very dramatically over the last two months because of um, the, the pandemic. Um, from a consumer side point of view, how does this how do you see these things changing? I, I know that the report looks at like different categories yeah. um, of activities. So why don't we run through those real quick and you give us your view on how you see some of these things playing out? Yeah, yeah. Well, cl clearly, I mean, go through all the big sort of categories. Um, uh, let's start with healthcare. I mean, healthcare is obviously in the center of this thing right now. Um, I mean, clearly, and probably people are experiencing this now that their regular family doctor, their GP, 
isn't available, the clinic isn't open, the office isn't open, and they're doing telemedicine. I mean, I've had a telemedicine um, consult on something in the last few days. And, and when you experience that, it's pretty cool. And, and why weren't we doing that before? Because it was kind of marginal, it was fringe, it was the alternative. Now it's the only way we can do that. And I think more and more people are going to become completely comfortable with that. Um, so that's healthcare. Think about uh, banking. I mean, you know, clearly the whole notion of a physical space to bank has sort of gone away. But Bank of America, Lloyds Bank, all these big banks still have huge banking infrastructures. They're not going to need those in the future. The bank is your phone. So that kind of physical environment that they've got is is changing dramatically. The, the CEO of Barclays Bank said yesterday that he thinks that the era of having 7,000 people in a big office space together is over. So just think about how profound a change that's going to be. Uh, think about how big banks are going to have to re-engineer how we apply for mortgages using modern tools. You know, so that's another big change. Enter entertainment. I mean, this could be the final nail in the coffin of the movie theater. I mean, you know, you're going to probably have very, very high-end movie theaters, kind of IMAX-style experiences, but everything else is going to be online. Everything else is going to be in that home. The, the, the concert-going experience is transitioning into virtual reality, into virtual platforms like Waze, more and more of the kind of top-line um, uh, musicians and acts are all creating concerts in ways. So that's another example. I mean, I think you can go through them all, Stan, and realize that this is a very, very pr profound moment of change in which this sort of digital world that you live in and I live in and many people listening to this probably live in, which has still been the exception rather than the norm, is suddenly flipping over into becoming the norm for more and more and more of us. And it's an acceleration into a future that people like me have been talking about for a long time and, and, and a future that isn't in the future anymore. Mm -hmm. So what do you think that that's going to do about um, access to power and about access to um, sort of livelihoods? Because we've talked a lot, I know, at the Hub in Davos and in different places about the future of um, – work and in in this kind of really radically changed environment so um you know when you have the the kind of growth of a service that exists online it's very easy not it's not easy to be the winner but it's very easy to have you know extremely large winners um so how do you see this playing out for jobs and for people's livelihoods yeah no it's a great question and and, and i think more and more people have um, come to understand that one of the key dynamics of this, you know, more tech-centric age we are in is the notion of platform economics, uh, the notion of Metcalfe's law, that the more people there are on the network, the more valuable the network is. And that, you know, in layman's language, that means it's a, a winner-take-all -all environment. So clearly we've seen that. If you look at the distribution of uh, companies within the, uh, the S&P 500 now, it's already about 35%, in fact, even reaching higher than that, into 40% uh, orientated, consisting of, of tech companies. So clearly, the wealth, the power uh, has been orientating towards this. But as I say, we've only scratched the surface. And going forward, I think uh, the power is going to consolidate amongst 
those people who are, are controlling the platforms, who have dominance within the platforms and who have uh, access to the data, who are deploying the most resources towards development of AI, which again further kind of supercharges the notion of the, the winner takes all. So, yeah, this is, a, again, a very profound moment in which the fundamentals of how economies work and, and consequently how wealth is created and consequently how power is distributed change very, very radically. So I think if you're in that world or on the fringe of that world or aligned with that world, this is, this is a good news story. And consequently, if you're not and you're in a kind of more... Uh, analog physical world uh it's it's harder to see a kind of good news story in that so yeah again i think that has all sorts of implications um what it means to socioeconomics what it means to sociopolitics and those things are going to take a while to, to kind of play through societies but um yeah there's a lot of questions you can ask about that how does this affect uh like the real estate market because you know, you could argue that the, the real estate world is actually seeing increasing um, levels of inroads for technology, whether it's like pricing with Zillow or or any, you know, virtual reality for selling a property, that kind of thing. But for most people, their largest single asset is real estate and, you know, to some extent, their home. Um, but we, the world that you're talking about, where everything on the business side, let's just say commercial real estate is becoming you know, much more viably presented online, that probably points to some very large dislocations for commercial real estate. Like you just mentioned um, earlier, you know, post, post pandemic, who's going to want to have a trading floor of 7,000 people when everybody's dispersed into a kind of virtual trading floor? Yeah. What do you see happening around commercial real estate? Could that maybe take some of the pressure off of like accessibility? Because Maybe a big office tower gets converted into like lower cost residential or like, how do you see that playing out? Yeah, no, again, there's a lot to unpack in that. I mean, you know, a, a starting point is that I think everybody's home is going to become their castle. You know, the notion of work at home, which, again, is still the exception, is going to become much more the norm. I saw a, a, a news piece yesterday saying that the uh, some survey had been done that 30 percent of people in Manhattan want to leave Manhattan and they want to have a kind of suburban place. And the number one thing they want in that suburban place is a space to work from home. So I think that, again, is a kind of lead indicator of a very rapid transition. That's huge. Yeah, yeah that could be huge and have lots of dominoes fall from that. I'm not, I'm not one of these people, to be honest, Stan, that thinks that this is a, an overnight complete collapse of the commercial real estate marketplace and that nobody ever goes back to an office. I do think, though, that people in the office design world, the steel cases, the coals, whoever, this is going to be a very good time for them because there's going to be a huge need to reconfigure and redesign office spaces. I mean, the 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 conventional financially driven logic in the last 10 years 15 years has to been crap to be has been to cram more and more people into offices give everybody less and less space and i've argued uh, for the last few years that that's one of the reasons why people have left the office and why the whole we work phenomena has sprung up because people don't want to be battery chickens they don't want to sit in those cubicles and work in those kind of ugly spaces 
that's why you know we were tapped into that opportunity for people who didn't want to be in the cubicle they wanted to be on the couch and so i think big businesses in big uh, you know modern commercial office spaces are going to have to do a lot of reconfiguration of those physical spaces because as you quite rightly say otherwise people are just not going to want to go back into those environments and if you want to be an employer of choice if your you know commercial future is predicated on having very high quality people in whatever you know thing you do then you're not going to be able to hire people and put them into those ugly environments where there's a huge health risk so that's a big thing i do think also that um this huge build out of of office space i mean in every big city in the world is probably going to go on pause and the reits are going to have a bad time and if too much of your you know whatever you're doing is predicated on that you know business as usual continuing growth in real estate um, commercial real estate i think that's going to be a uh, that's going to be a pretty tough place to be in as well but but you know uh you know young people particularly are always going to want to go to the city i mean you've got to go to the big cities to build your network build your career you know build a social life i don't think the big cities are over uh but i do think that the notion of social distancing however that manifests in both a you know kind of personal life and and your business life is a new normal that we've got to get used to and 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 uh you know leaders in big businesses have to take very seriously yeah and i could see some kind of i think an acceleration of the hybrid nomad model yep. where i i see a lot of younger people in hub culture and you know in the 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 digital you know kind of crypto space or the the technology space they live very um transitory like existences from a space standpoint. So they'll go live in Bali for a month and then they'll live in New York City for a month and then they'll live, you know, somewhere else for a, a month and they're kind of using the flexibility of um the gig economy with Airbnb and Uber and everything else to be able to kind of float from place to place. And I I see that becoming even more um of a thing. Where... In fact, we've got a report that we've just sort of put on hold because of all of the the sort of pandemic and the panic around it, but which we were going to publish uh probably next month called 21 places of the future. To 21 places around the world that we thought represented where future development was happening, where new jobs were being created, new types of jobs were being created. And one of the 21 places was what we call remoteopia. And it's <laughs> that the nomad lifestyle so you know i, I completely buy uh, buy what you just said that that the, those people who are kind of floating around working in bali on the beach working in you know in, in the couch in starbucks somewhere else no that's uh that's something obviously again has been a very kind of small percentage of people who work like that but i think that's going to explode and it's going to become more and more common mm mm-hmm. Yeah. What are some other uh, insights that you guys found on the after the virus report before we uh start to to kind of wrap up from that? Yeah. One I mean one other idea we floated in the report um was if you think back to 911 uh and the kind of existential shock that represented one of the most uh meaningful things that happened in the wake of that was the creation of the TSA. And if you can remember back before 911, you know, get flying was pretty kind of 
you, you show up half an hour before the play and you sort of put your bag on a little kind of crappy x-ray machine and it was it was um very loose and, and obviously that's what the terrorists exploited very quickly after 9-11 the tsa was created and the whole infrastructure built out to keep people safe flying and the whole kind of experience was changed so fast forward to today what we think might happen is the creation of an hsa a health security agency oh wow and uh you may have you may begin to see sort of health airlocks on buildings where to go into a building you have to have a health scan and if you have to um go onto a plane you have it. any building a sports stadium anything these you, you could almost imagine like a do you remember in um star trek the the uh, the tricorder that could take you know uh, bones would do the the medical tricorder and take your your health readings, so something like that. And obviously they've got rudimentary versions of that with temperature scanners now. So I think that could be a very big thing that that, that happens. And, and in fact, you're already beginning to see that um, going into retail stores at the moment. I think that's gonna become more common. I mean, Costco announced this morning that they're gonna um, uh, mandate everybody to, to wear a mask going in, customers, not just the staff. Mm -hmm. And that's going to become the new benchmark. So something like the HSA, um, recognizing that we can't be held hostage to, to a virus like COVID or something else. We need we do need to move around the world. We're not going to cower in our caves forever. Um, but we need to create this kind of infrastructure around our physical movement into buildings, into space to um, to allow us to even do that. So do you think that what we've seen here is, you know, because let's just hope, you know, fingers crossed that the, you know, Trump, I love how Trump says it'll just magically disappear. But let's just say that, you know, we get a vaccine, which we think is maybe going to be here at some point, you know, let's just say within the next year to 18 months, but maybe even sooner. Or you have therapeutics uh, like remdesivir or other things that help to um, make it not fatal. Um, and then, you know, other sort of benefits that just come from social dis distancing and getting the RO below one so that it does sort of become less and less of uh, a, a dehabilitating, um, you know, thing for society. Do you think that these changes are permanent in the way that like the psyche changed after 9-11 and you had TSA? Do you, do you think we're in for like a permanent shift in terms of how like private health and public health are are managed because you know this is really like I, I think it 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 has so many implications about privacy. No, no, I mean, again, one of the ideas in the after the virus report is what we call the creation of the clean regime. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think when we go back out into the real world, when after this lockdown, people are going to be very very conscious of just how dirty the world is, mm. and um, you know. From from the from the wet markets of China through to the seat on the plane you're sitting on, you know we're going to realize, going to look at the world again and realize, gee, wow, no wonder there are viruses and, and things like that spreading around. So we think that cleanliness is going to become, um, you know, being being conspicuously clean is going to be chic, and wherever the chicness is going to be big money. So there's going to be big money into that in every manifestation of that. 
But it, but you're right, Stan. This is not a kind of the people who imagine this is a kind of V-shaped recovery and we just all go back to normal. I don't think they're reading the tea leaves right. This is a very very profound existential moment. Probably the most significant disruption, certainly. Uh, you know, since the Second World War. I mean, unless you're sort of 90 years old, this is probably the biggest deal you've ever seen in your life, you know? And uh, the, the, the implications of it in the way we live, in the way we work, in the way we socialize, communicate, travel. I mean, you just go, go through the list. I, I don't think the world of, you know, December 2019 is coming back anytime soon. Yeah, it's a bummer. I enjoyed December 2019. <laughs> um, so before we wrap up, um, do you have any final thoughts about how the technology layer and privacy and security could evolve in the wake of this? Because um, this this is like, you know, I think the lights are still off um, and we don't quite know how people are going to land economically once the lights start to maybe slowly come back on. But one of the huge areas is going to be, I think, privacy and security. Um, do you have any recommendations for listeners um, about what they can do um, to, to take that into account in this new world? Yeah, in fact, the whole debate about privacy is, is one of the last chapters in our After the Virus report, Stan. And yeah. um, uh, I, I think, and clearly this is a very, very live wire. It's very... Um, contentious and there are widely wildly um dis, uh, diverse ideas here I, I i think and i'm speaking personally here it's not any sort of corporate position or but just personally speaking that one of the uh most important um casualties of the virus is going to be privacy i think the the pressure to do contact tracing uh, which will be voluntary to begin with, but then will flip into being a mandatory thing, government-mandated thing. This this is how we're going to get to the world that Orwell, you know, warned us about. And some some somebody some of the folks listening to this will know uh, the book Surveillance Capitalism by Shazana Zuboff from Harvard. If you if you're not familiar with that book, you check it out and. I'm very worried about it, to be honest. Um, I hope, I hope that uh, people are sensible enough to realise that we we may there may be short-term solutions and benefits from things like contact tracing, but the longer-term cost of it will be disastrous. I, I hope, and in fact, I saw stats coming out of the UK yesterday. Again, another survey, uh, the majority of people don't want to do contract tracing for that reason. And uh, that was I was cheered by that because um, I think this is a, you know, this is a very, very slippery slope. And we know through history and we know through warnings um, from people like Orwell that once you build an infrastructure, it's very, very hard to dismantle it. The industrial military complex you know, we were warned about that, weren't we? And um, this will be another element of it. And, and tech is obviously being drawn more and more into that that world. Uh, and I, I personally very troubled by that, very worried by that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that a lot of people are worried about it and troubled by it. And 
you know, because of the nature of tech being so pervasive and, as you say, winner take all, the ability for an individual to do very much about it is um, kind of limited. So, you know, other than advocacy or, um, you know, from our point of view, there are models, though, that could emerge or that have emerged that point away towards some level of um, protection in that area. And I think fundamentally it comes down to the ability to own your own data yeah. and to have a kind of digital um, self-sovereignty. And, and you can't have digital self-sovereignty if you don't own your data. Yeah. And the ability to, to manage and control your data and even to know what data is um, or what data exists about you is something that's pretty rare in the world today. No, that's uh, right. And, and again, in sort of academic circles and in the leading edge, uh, the kind of think tank discussion around this, the idea of data ownership, uh, data sovereignty, as you, as you put it, you know, has been well discussed. We've been talking about that, kicking that idea around for a while. But, but this is what's so powerful about Zubos Insight in the surveillance capitalism book and was very instrumental in 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 changing my thinking uh to be honest stan because you know the the analogy she she calls out in her work is that this is like this is akin to the conquistadores going to the new world in the 1500s and interacting with people there who had no conception that land had any value and, and because the conquistadores came with a different conception that this land was very valuable, they owned the land before the people, the indigenous people, understood that that land had any value. So the wow, game, what a great yeah, analogy. Yeah, so it's a brilliant insight. And, and, and it, to me, that's what's happening with data now, is that the, the, the data is owned by Facebook, Google, uh, you know, all the usual suspects, before a regular person even understood that their data had any value. Mm -hmm. So how do, how do regular people now grapple back that sovereignty, that ownership? Um, and that, again, is very, very troubling because it's so complicated that you have to be very, very, you know, up to date and up to speed with this for ordinary citizens to understand it, an ordinary smart you know, non non tech civilian in 2020 is akin to a, you know, somebody in the Andes Mountain in 1500 in understanding this new world that's built around them. Well, Ben, I'm happy to report that all citizens of Emerald City own their own data. Um, so I, I do think that maybe there's an element of brand promise that can be valuable here in terms of companies or organizations that want to deliver that um, that benefit or that right, um, I do think it's actually a right um, to people. So, you know, at some point, as people become more aware of it, hopefully they'll be able to essentially, you know, you know, in a way vote for, for what's important to them. But I, I think you're right. Like if you don't care about things that you don't see as being valuable and it's really tough to get your head around data because it's so invisible. Yeah, you know? that's right. Yeah. Anything else you'd like to uh, add about uh, after the virus, like maybe a note of hope <laughs> before we uh, wrap up this session of our Emerald City discussion? No, I mean, one of my catchphrases I use, Stan, is um, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. I mean, you have to be optimistic at this moment. It, it, is, it is easy to be pessimistic. There are so many 
you know, dark things that are happening in the world and, and dark things that will be accelerated by this kind of troubling existential shock. But, you know, ultimately, if you're a humanist, if you're uh, in a position of leadership, certainly you have to be an optimist, then you have to recognize that ultimately the, the key element of our DNA, which has you know, allowed us to become the king of the swingers, if you like, is our adaptability. It's not mm -hmm. the strongest of the species that survives, it's the most adaptable. And so this is a moment in which we're being forced as individuals, as corporations, as societies, to adapt and the people that come out of this well will be the people that adapt the, the most materially, the most significantly and the, and, and the most rapidly. So again, I think that's super interesting to think about all of the change and all the disruption and all of the new innovations being created uh, you know, through necessity. I mean, that's gonna be super interesting to see what happens next. Well, I do think that that adaptability is made possible by like leaders. And so, you, you know, for Cognizant and the, the Center for the Future of Work, I mean, never has it been more relevant in, in my view um, than it is today because everyone is suddenly forced with, you know, not just conceptual ideas about the changes happening in work, but now it's like very real and present. And so yeah. for more on after the virus, we can visit Cognizant's uh, Center for the Future of Work. And then I can't wait to to see your 21 places of the future when that comes out, because I'll be really interested to see who made the cut. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll chat again then, Stan. Sounds like a plan. Thank you so much for joining us. That's Benjamin Pring with Cognizant after the virus.